Well, good morning. It's been a while since I've seen you all. Uh, I had the privilege of preaching at a church in Woodstock for the last three weeks in July, so that was um, a great privilege to uh, minister to God's people right in Woodstock. So um, it's good to be uh, back with you. Um, as Kevin said, I'm, uh, my name is Mitch Kirkmeyer. I'm a church planter in residence here, and Woodstock is where we're trying to uh, begin a new congregation. And um, as I told the, the church there the last uh, three weeks in July when I was preaching there, that we aren't, we're coming and joining Jesus' church in Woodstock in sharing the gospel with that city. And so we don't look at it as a competition, but we're joining with them. So uh, before we get into our scripture for today, let me um, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we can come together and sing songs about you because you've revealed yourself to us. We wouldn't even be able to sing about you unless you told us uh, who you are and what you're like, and unless you came into our lives and uh, revealed yourself to us. And so we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for your word and for the story of Joseph that we've been learning about thus far. It definitely um, gives us a different perspective of what um, life could look like, and yet it's um, what we all experience um, so often is the ups and downs like Joseph did. Um, so would you help us to see you this morning clearly, um, to, to worship you um, through uh, your scripture, um, Genesis 46, and those words that I prepared that are true um, to what you once said, would you let them um, ring in our hearts and please bring us to you with them, but those that are not, would you just let them um, fall to the ground and be forgotten? It's in your son's name, I pray. Amen. So life is complicated, isn't it? There's ups and downs, and it, and it seems like we kind of weave in and out of, of happiness and sadness or, or blessing or, or, or hard times or, or peace and anxiety. And, and on the seas of life, sometimes the waters are just calm and we're kind of sailing along, but sometimes a storm rolls in and we're taking in water and we're barely holding on, just trying to stay in the boat. And perhaps the, the scariest part is that we don't know what's coming because at one moment the, the sea could be calm and the waters are, are fine, but then all of a sudden a storm rolls in and it's just totally unexpected and now we're holding on for our dear lives. There's a large element of unknown as we walk through life. And in the midst of the difficulties of life, as we ha- have storms or whatever come in, we, we usually set our sights on something to get us through it. So for some of us, we may, maybe we hate our jobs. We don't like having eight hours of our day just you know, scheduled out five days a week, and, and we, want, we want that freedom to schedule it ourselves. And so we set our sights on retirement, and maybe that's when we experience that, we'll have relief. And for some of us, um, maybe we're scrambling around taking care of little kids and we're just always taking care of kids and then we think, oh, so someday they'll be able to take care of themselves. That's when I'll really have relief. For some of us, we don't like the stage of life we're in. Maybe you're a student and you're in middle school and so you're like, oh, I'm so done with middle school, I'm looking forward to high school. And then when you're in high school, then you just start looking forward to college. And so you just keep looking forward to the next stage of life and that's when we'll really experience life as we want to. We think that's when life will get better. And for some of us, maybe we're going through a trial that's bringing immense emotional pain into our lives. And so we look forward to it being over. And so what we so often look forward to is an escape from our current reality. We say to ourselves, when life is finally like this, then I'll be okay. 
But the thing is, if we live like that, we will wait our whole lives waiting for life to be okay, and then we'll die, and it still won't be okay, and we'll just have waited our whole life for it. And so what do we do in the present? As we walk through the unknowns of life and the ups and downs and the twists and turns, what do we do now when we get curves and detours to the plan that we set out for ourselves? What do we do now in the midst of the unknowns of life? Well, life is complicated and filled with unknowns, and this was no less true for the life of Joseph as we've been following through in his life in the last chapters of Genesis uh, in, the, in the Bible. So if you've been following this series, you know uh, from the series title that Joseph was a man whose life was marked by the presence of God. We, he lived in the spirit of God. This was just what everyone recognized about him. But it's a bit surprising because if you've been following closely, his life has a lot of ups and downs. We think, God, he, the presence of God, it should just be all easy for him. But his life has just been filled with ups and downs and twists and turns. And so to just recap a bit of it, it's just a story we need to keep retelling and reminding of ourselves. He, Joseph is his father's favorite, and God speaks to Joseph through dreams. And, and one day he has this dream that his whole family will bow down before him. But, but his brothers hate him because of the dream and because he's his father's favorite. And so they sell him into slavery and they fake his death to his father. And so he, this is 17-year-old going off into slavery. That's a pretty down moment. And then he becomes the slave of an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt named Potiphar. But because his mar- life is marked by the presence of God, he, God makes him successful in everything. And so Potiphar says, you know what, you're going to oversee my whole house. So he gets like promoted from the, the slave who's just kind of doing you know, the regular stuff. And he's like, actually, you're going to oversee everything. He gets promoted. But it comes crashing down when Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of acting inappropriately with her. And so Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. So slavery gets promoted, falsely accused, prison. So now he's in prison. But Joseph's life, his life is marked by the presence of God. And so in prison, even while he's a prisoner, he's promoted. And now the keeper of the prison is like, I see something in you, God. Your life is marked by the presence of God. You're successful in everything. You know what? You're going to look over all the prisoners in this prison. And one day... Two prisoners were put in his custody who were also officers that were close to Pharaoh. They have dreams, and Joseph, te- Joseph tells them what they mean because God speaks to him through dreams, and so he tells them what, what their dreams meant. The baker is to be hanged, and the cupbearer is to be restored. And so Joseph tells the cupbearer, Remember me. When you're restored, remember me and, and, give, and give my plea to Pharaoh. I was taken out of my homeland. I was enslaved, and then I was falsely accused and put in prison. Tell him my plea. So he's hoping to, to get out of this situation. But the cupbearer gets restored and he forgets him for two whole years. And so he goes from brothers hating him, he gets enslaved, gets promoted, gets thrown in prison, gets promoted again, and then he thinks, this is my way out, and the cupbearer just forgets. For two whole years, he just has silence as he sits in prison. But finally, Pharaoh himself has a dream that needs to be interpreted, and the cupbearer finally remembers. So he says, okay, go get this guy out of prison. Joseph is summoned. He comes before Pharaoh, and he tells him, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of plenty of food in Egypt. There's going to be seven years of famine. And so you need to manage these years of plenty so that you take, take a portion of that so you can use that during the years of famine, and you can save the lives of your people. And Pharaoh, he also recognizes the mark of God's presence on Joseph's life. And so he promotes him to second in command of Egypt. So he starts off as a slave in Egypt, he's in prison, and now he's second in command over Pharaoh's household, which is all of Egypt. But the famine doesn't only extend to Egypt, it extends to the whole known world at the time, all the way north to Canaan, where Joseph's father and his brothers live. 
And so because of this, two years into the famine, Jacob sends Joseph's brothers down. He says, you've got to go get some food from the Egyptians because I hear they have it stored up. So he sends them down two years into the famine and they go down there to get food. And so Joseph's brilliant plan, not only him storing up those seven years of plenty, storing up during that time, not only saves people in Egypt, but then the whole known world is coming in there and they're being fed because Joseph had this, this plan that he set up in Egypt. And not only that, it's turning out that his family is being saved from starvation because they sold him into slavery and got him into Egypt in the first place. And so we can see that Joseph's life is complicated. There's lots of ups and downs, lots of twists and turns, and there's lots of moments of him just sitting in the darkness by himself without his family. And as soon as he was sold into slavery, life was just this gigantic question mark. Can you imagine a 17-year-old sold into slavery? Where am I going? Who's going to buy me? What am I going to be doing? Just this big question mark. His future was completely unknown. And yet what everyone saw in him was that he was a man Uh, I guess a boy in the beginning, a person marked by the presence of God. Even Pharaoh saw that he had the spirit of God in him. But what is Joseph's perspective in all this? Joseph, when his brothers come down, he conceals his identity from them. He doesn't let them know that he's their brother because he wants to test them. Are these the same brothers that sold me into slavery? Is that still their character? And when he sees that they're not, that they've been transformed, which we've heard about in the the previous weeks, um, he can't contain himself anymore, and he, and he lets his identity be known to them. He, he, he tells them, and he brings them close and, and tells them his perspective on this. Here's a couple of verses from chapter 45. He says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into, sl- into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So from Joseph's perspective, God has done this, actually. He's the one who got him in slavery and got him in prison, got him promoted to second in command in Egypt. And he did it for a purpose. It was in order to preserve life, including the life of his own family, the life of the brothers. His, you know, the brothers, we read the list of their, their families now. They're worried about their children you know, and their wives starving. And now he, Joseph's going to be the one that preserves their life. So jo- Joseph sees that if he had never been sold into slavery, he would not be in the position now to save his family and countless others from di- of dying from famine. So in today's scripture, Genesis 46, the the camera has panned over from Joseph and it's panned over to his father, Jacob, or also known as Israel. Both names are used for him. This is Joseph's father. And so Joseph, he tells his brothers, go hurry up, get my father and bring him down here. And and so they do. And at the end of chapter 45 in Genesis, Jacob hears the report that Joseph is alive and then he sees these Egyptian wagons coming to take him there, sort of like this limousine coming to pick him up and he's just going to sit on and then ride on down to Egypt. And then all of a sudden his spirit is revived and he's like, Joseph really is alive and I'm going to go down to Egypt and see him. Now Jacob, he's had a rough and tumble life as well. And I won't take the time to rehearse all of it, but what is of crucial importance is that God has given Jacob the same promise that he gave to Jacob's father Isaac and to Jacob's grandfather Abraham. He told him, I will bless you and I'll make you into a great nation and I'll give you the land of Canaan to dwell in. And so Jacob, that's where he is, in the land of Canaan. He has a relationship with God. He's thinking, I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to dwell here. My family's going to keep growing into a great nation. And that promise seems something sure 
to rest on. And perhaps he thought it was being fulfilled in seed form, like my family's growing and we read about the 70 people. I'm dwelling in the land of Canaan. Sure, I don't have all of it, but God promised he'd give it to me, so he's, it's going to happen. He probably figures, actually, that he'll spend the rest of his life right where he is because where he's living right now is in Hebron, not Hebron, Illinois, but, he, you know, but uh, he's living in Hebron. And this is just a, a couple miles from where his first wife and his mother and his father and his grandfather and his grandmother were buried. It's like he's like living right there. So he's probably thinking, um, I'm, I'm an old age and I'm going to live here and I'm probably going to live here for the rest of my life and I'm going to be buried right over there. But now, he's setting out on a journey into the unknown. And if he doesn't, he has no choice. His family may starve because of this famine. So he's, and the famine's two years in, and they're already needing food, and it's going to go for another five years. And none of this seems according to plan, because now he's leaving the place God promised him. He's leaving his families in, in this situation where they might starve to death. What's going on? How am I going to become a great nation? How am I going to dwell in this land? And so as we follow Jacob also known as Israel's journey, the big question this passage answers is, as God's people, how can we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? As God's people, how can we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? And this passage has three parts. First, the the promise of safety. Second, the proof of safety. And third, the provider of safety. And so each of these will contribute an answer to our question. So, Let's begin with the promise of safety in chapter 46 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, verses 1 through 4. And I'll read verse 1, Genesis chapter 46. It's also in your bulletins. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And so let's just pause for a second. On his way down to Egypt, um, he makes this pit stop at Beersheba and Beersheba isn't just any old place because this is a significant location for Israel and his family. It's sort of like if you, you know, I don't, I don't know what an example for everyone to be, but maybe you had your family were farmers and like this, you know, you go to the old farmhouse, like, oh, this has been sold to so-and-so and so-and-so, but however many years back, this was my family's, and you go there and you're like, oh, this is where, you know, grandpa milked the cows, this is where great-grandpa did such and such, and it's, this is sort of that place for, for Israel. Um, and his, his grandfather, Abraham, he had actually named the place, and then he planted a tree there, which is probably there to this day. When Israel goes there, it's probably like, oh, there's the, you know, the tree my grandfather planted here. And Abraham, he worshiped God there. And, and this was even the place that Abraham bet everything on God when he trusted him by offering his son Isaac, his promised son, as a sacrifice to God. He didn't, it didn't actually offer him um, in the end because God provided a ram in his place. But then later, Isaac, Israel's father, also experienced God powerfully there, and he built an altar, and he worshipped him, and then God assured him three times, I am with you, Isaac. And so then Israel, too, had lived, the, had lived there uh, for a time of his life. And now he stops here where his father and his grandfather had both experienced God and worshipped him. It's also the very southern tip of the area where, where Jacob was living. That would have been considered his territory. And so here he is at the very edge of leaving what he calls home, and of leaving the land that God had promised that he would dwell in, but he's being forced out of because of a, a famine. So he stops here. And so he too worships God and experiences God there. So let's pick up in verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. 
For there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And so God speaks to Jacob, or Israel, gives him this assurance. So who's talking to him? It's the God, God, the God of his father Isaac. And, and Jacob should not be afraid to go down to Egypt. He says, don't be afraid. Well, why shouldn't he be afraid? God gives him four reasons why he shouldn't be afraid. First, because there he's going to make Jacob into a great nation. They aren't going down there to be extinguished and just sort of like fizzle out. The promise to grow his family into a great nation is still in effect and it's going to happen in Egypt. Second, God himself will go down with them. Leaving Canaan doesn't mean leaving God because God is going down there with them. He's present with them. He's still, the the promise that he will have a relationship with Jacob and his family still stands. Third, God will bring them up again. Not only are they going to go down to Egypt, but they're going to come up again. They're not just going to stay down there. Egypt isn't the final destination. The promise to give them a land of their own will happen. They're not going to dwell in Egypt forever. And fourth, Joseph's hand will close Jacob's eyes. As we'll see, Jacob can't even walk on this journey. The wagons come and he's carried by um, his sons. He can't walk. He's been talking about dying a lot and he's settled down right next to the family cemetery. And so he's not in that great a shape to be making a journey like this. But this journey will not be in vain. He's not going to die on the way. God is promising him that. He's going to make it there and he's going to see his beloved son, his favorite son, Joseph, again. And, And I think this is, just to quickly note, it's just, the, the first three promises that were assuring him um, were sort of, you know, these big level things. But this is just this really personal promise that he, he shows God's tenderness and his care. Like, you are going to see your son again. He's going to close your eyes. It's this nice, personal, tender promise he gives him. And our big question is, is, as God's people, how can we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? And the answer we receive here is by trusting in our trustworthy God who is in control. We walk with confidence through the unknowns of life by trusting in our trustworthy God who is in control. Because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He is trustworthy and he is in control. He doesn't tell Jacob, well, maybe these things will happen. I'll see what I can do. You, you, you know, we'll have to see how it turns out. No, he tells him what will happen. This is what's going to happen, Jacob. And the, the best person to be in control of our lives is someone who is trustworthy. And that is the case with God. Because God promises safety for Jacob and his family. And that is exactly what they're going to get. They will be preserved in Egypt and they will come out again. So let me ask for you, do you believe God is trustworthy? Do you believe you can trust him with your family, with your future, with your very life? Jacob has heard God speak and, and, and make this promise, but he still has the choice. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to act on what God has said? Am I going to act on this promise that God has given me? Because he could just say, you know, I don't really think that's going to happen and kind of take it in his own hands. Well, the best way to figure out if, is whether you believe God is trustworthy is whether you, you act like it. So who is the keys to your life? Is it, is it you or is it him? Either way, he, he does have the keys, whether we recognize it or not. But, but if you don't act like it, you're going to be stressed, and you're going to be anxious, and you're going to lack peace. You're always going to be scrambling, scrambling for control that you can never have. And when we trust God, we find rest and we find peace. And now, let me, let me warn you, don't, what I'm about to say, don't look to your right or to your left because... I don't want to get you in trouble, but it's, 
it's like being a passenger seat driver. Now to keep looking forward, don't make any glances or, I don't know, you'll have to deal with that yourself, I guess. But when you're in the passenger seat, the fact is that you're not driving. You aren't in control of what happens with the car. You, you may think that telling somebody something gives you some sort of control, but they're still in control because if they don't listen to what you say, they have to listen to what you say in order to, for anything to change. They're still the ones in control. If a deer runs out, they're the ones who have to stop the car. No matter what you say, you are not in control. So some people... I mean, you can, I don't know, maybe it's you, maybe you can watch it on YouTube or you've seen it in movies, but some people can't stand not being in control. When, when you're in the passenger seat and someone else is driving, you're, you're stressed, you're gripping the door handle, you're, you know, your shoulders are kind of going up, you're pumping on some brake pedal that isn't even, even, even there. And, and, but all those things, you know, telling the person, watch out for this or that, slow down or speed up, you're using the wipers too fast to slow them down or, or whatever it is, all those things are these attempts of like, oh, I want to be in control of this, but we... But the fact is we're not because somebody else is in the driver's seat. None of those things give us any more control than if we didn't do it in the first place. It doesn't change anything. The only thing it changes is that it stresses you out and whoever is driving is stressed out. Now the case may be that the person driving isn't trustworthy. Maybe they have a you know, bad track record and you, you have reason for for being nervous, and, and maybe they're dangerous, and so the person in control, maybe they shouldn't really be in control, so you have good reason for that. But, but if the person is trustworthy with a perfect record, and they're always in control when they drive, and, and they see everything going on, and they're so skilled that, that nothing could happen that they didn't plan on happening in the first place because nothing surprises them, then you would be crazy to be stressed about them driving. Joseph was sold as a slave and then he was put in prison. He chose none of that. He was in the passenger seat. But who's driving? Someone trustworthy. Someone who's always in control. Someone who isn't surprised by anything. Someone who sees everything going on and he has a plan. And, and he is trustworthy because look how it turned out for Joseph. And he sees it. God used everything that happened in Joseph's life to end up for good. That He actually got to save his family, the very ones who sold him into slavery in the first place. And he got to save many others. And Jacob has had his own twists and turns as well. And he has needed to trust in God. It took him a long time to get there. And that's why his name was changed to Israel. Israel means one who wrestles with God. Because he was always trying to do it. He was in the pastor's seat. And he's trying to, you know, he's pumping the brakes. He's tensing up. He's trying to do it himself. He tried to do it through deception. and Tried to do it through scheming. But, but now he's learned. And so what about you? What do you have going on in your life? that you need to trust God with? Where are you tensing up your shoulders and, and gripping the handle of the door and, and trying to pump the brake pedal that isn't even there? Where are you, do you need to look over into the driver's seat and see that the one who's driving is trustworthy and put your trust in him and say to him, I trust you. I trust what you're doing in my life. I trust where you're driving this. So as God's people... We can walk with confidence through the unknowns of life by trusting in our trustworthy God who is in control. So that's what we learn from the promise of safety in verses 1 through 4. Next, we turn to the proof of safety in verses 5 through 27. And so let me start by reading verses 5 through 7 of that section. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Jacob, he does act on God's promise of safety by setting out with his whole family and everything that he possesses and all his, the little, the little ones, it says he took their, the little ones with him. So there's like all these little kids, there's his family, he's bringing them all to Egypt. In verses 26 through 27, summarize and tell us that 70 people left Canaan that day. They all set out, they all came into Egypt, all 70. But what we have in between these two summaries of their setting out and their arriving is, is something very special, and we may be tempted to not see it that way, because we may be tempted to write off this register of names as sort of like this, oh, you know, what does this matter to me? Just all these names of so-and-so and uh, was the son of so-and-so and, and whatever. But the fact is, at a, you know, at a bird's eye view, God breathed out all of Scripture, including passages like this one. And God does not waste words. God is perfect, and so this is here for a reason. He has a purpose for it. And I liked what Dan Olson, preaching a couple of weeks back, said. He said, what would... Israelites' parents have wanted their kids to learn from reading this passage of Scripture. If they're sitting around the dinner table and they're reading this passage, what, what generations later, what would this passage give to God's people? And what does it give to us today? So we've heard the passage read once, so I won't reread it now, but is there, I, I don't have experience with this, but I've heard people talk about it and how excited they are. Is there anybody here that does like ancestry or like genealogy work? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Okay, nobody, unless somebody just doesn't want to admit it. But if you've been around somebody who's like doing that, you know, like they're working back and they're trying to like figure out, oh, when did, who, where did this person live and who is their kid and who is their father? Like they get really excited when they like find a, a record or something of like, oh, I finally tracked down my great, great, great grandfather. He was here at this time and, the, and this. And so people get really excited about that. And so if you find something like this, this uh, a list of people and who uh, w- was the son of who and where were they, this is like a gold mine for somebody doing ancestry work. Because these, maybe, maybe somebody traces back, that, like, oh, I traced it all the way back when my ancestors came across the Atlantic Ocean from Europe and when they landed in the United States, I found a record of everyone who came over. And they can point and say, look, here they are. Those are the names of my great, 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 great grandparents. And this was them coming over from Europe. And that's, that's an exciting thing for, for tracing um, your ancestry. And, and so a family coming over from Europe to North America is like this big life transition and discovering a record of them with names doing that is, as I said, a gold mine. And so here in Genesis 46, we can see this family's record of they're making this big life transition. They're moving from Canaan, moving down to Egypt. And so here's this record like, okay, we're making this big life transition. Here's everyone who we brought with. Here's everyone who we brought down to Egypt. And so if somebody was tracing this which, which Jews can biologically, like they're tracing this back. It's like, this is a gold mine for somebody wanting to trace the family of Abraham. And so we get to read it right here of this real family filled with real people going to a real place 3,800 years ago. 
And this isn't just some family that we're like disconnected from, like, oh, you know, good for them. Um, it's, I'm glad that somebody gets to trace that back. But this is uh, a family we're directly connected to because this is Abraham's family, the family that Jesus came out of. And you can actually go and look in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and some of the names in this list are the very names of people that are in Jesus' family tree. And so if these people hadn't survived, Jesus, this is the family Jesus came from. This is Jesus' family being uh, preserved and having life. And so, but for us who trust in Jesus, we've been adopted in Jesus' family as well. And so now we are also called sons of Abraham, as, as Galatians 3 says. So for God's people then and now, this register of names stands as, as proof of God's promises that he saved them from a famine and he brought the whole family de- from Canaan down to Egypt safely. And this is proof of the safety God promised to Jacob. Our big question is, as God's people, how can we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? And the answer we receive here is by making records of God's faithfulness, especially in the big moments of life. We walk with confidence through the unknowns of life by making records of God's faithfulness. Because it's so easy to just kind of float through life and and, and not pay attention to how God has worked in the midst of our our trials and our our circumstances and just just sort of forget about it and and not look at how he's currently working. But but doing this leads to thanklessness uh, and bitterness and eventually idolatry. If we don't remember that God's working in our lives, we'll worship somebody else as the one who's working in our lives, usually ourselves. Like, oh, I'm doing all this stuff. When we don't remember God's record proving God's faithfulness as a trustworthy driver in our lives, that's when we're tense and anxious and, and stressed in the passenger seat because we're, we're not paying attention to how, what his record has been in the past of how he's driven us. So do you take the time to reflect on how God has been at work in your life? Um, sometimes uh, I have a little list of things, even just for this, uh, this whole church planning process. Well, even when Katie and I were in seminary, it was like, look at these crazy ways that like, God would just you know, show up. Maybe we ask people for help or people just randomly. And so it's like, well, here's all these things he did. And then um, as we're planting a church, it's, I just list things out. Like when something crazy happens, just put it down. And I can look back and be like, whoa, this is God's hand at work in this. And so I'd encourage you to take a journal or, you know, do something or just have like a blessing list. Like look all these ways God has blessed us um, in, in ways we didn't expect. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 says that the, the key to rejoicing in the Lord and letting go of anxiety is to, in everything, pray to God with thanksgiving as we make our requests known to him. Hearts that are filled with thanks, I'm sorry, hearts that aren't filled with thanks are hearts that are filled with angst. So how do we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? First, it's by trusting in our trustworthy God who is in control. Second, it's by making records of his faithfulness, especially in the big moments of life. And these records remind us of how God um, has been at work in our lives in the past and, and, and how he's been true to our promises so we can go forward with confidence. Because look, he, this is his record. I can walk forward with confidence. So we've heard two parts of the story for today, the promise of safety and the proof of safety. Next we hear about the provider of safety in verses 28 through 34. It says, He... Uh, meaning Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You will say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And there's, there's many beautiful moments in Scripture where God chose fit to, to show us the deep affection people express to one another. We get front row seats to this intimate moment when Joseph and Jacob are reunited after 22 years apart. Uh, Jacob thought Joseph was dead because his brothers faked his death to him. Uh, Joseph doesn't know if his dad is uh, dead or alive because he asks his brothers, is my father still alive? Is he still okay? He doesn't even know if he has a father anymore. And so we get front row seats to that. And upon reunion with his son, Israel is content to die in peace. But he, he's actually going to live another 17 years in Egypt with his son. And actually he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. So he sort of, it's almost like on the be- first end of his life he gets 17 years with Joseph. Back end he gets 17 years with Joseph. But notice how Judah takes the lead in verse 28. Uh, as we've noted in previous weeks, a transformation has happened in his life. These brothers, Judah was actually the one who said, hey, why don't we sell Joseph into slavery? And now there's this transformation that he is actually leading his family. After the reunion, Joseph stands before his family of 70, most of whom uh, he hasn't even met before because he's been gone for 22 years. And he lays out this plan for what's going to happen. Um, but here's, I mean, just imagine this. Like, let's just imagine, I, I don't know, let's imagine we're all family. You guys haven't seen me for, for however many years. And then all of a sudden, like, I'm, you know, wearing all these Egyptian clothes. I've got my head shaved and I'm, you know, wearing the makeup and I've got totally different clothes. You all have beards on if you're a man um, and, and of age. Uh, and I'm so like, hey, I'm, you know, laying out this plan. You're like, what? This, this Egyptian officer? That's my cousin or you know my brother like how can this be you know how my brother-in-law how can you know it's just a strange interesting sight to think about and so he's standing before them giving them directions for how they're going to speak to the king of egypt how he's going to how how uh, they're going to talk to him so they can get this land that uh, pharaoh said they could have they had said he could have the best of the land but he didn't tell them uh, specify where. And so Joseph has this plan. I think the land of Goshen is where we should be. Um, and here's how we're going to talk to Pharaoh so that we can dwell there. But as the passage says, shepherds like Israel and his family are an abomination to the Egyptians and um, they won't even eat with them as we saw in, in chapter 43. And we're not sure you know, whether this was a religious thing, but what we do know is that they just wouldn't eat with them. It was, they'd separated themselves from shepherds. And so now God has arranged these events so that these shepherds uh, who Pharaoh won't even eat with at his table are going to come into his land and they're going to ask to dwell there and Pharaoh's going to give them the best of their land and they're going to be taken care of. And all of this is coming about because God sent Joseph down there into slavery 22 years ago and put him in a position of influence so that Pharaoh trusted him and saw God's hand at work in his life. And now he'll say, yes, you're, of course your family can come. You saved my entire life. In all my people, all the Egyptians, you've saved us from famine. And so God's been working this thing out. They couldn't stay in Canaan to survive because nothing would grow because, you know, everything is a famine. Things are dying. But in Egypt, there's the big water source in the Nile 
uh, in the Nile River, just flowing right through Egypt. Um, and Joseph had planned well because God was with him. So our big question is, as God's people, how can we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? And, and the answer we receive here is by recognizing God's provision through other people. We walk with confidence through the unknowns of life by recognizing God's provision through other people. And I titled this part of the story, The Provider of Safety. And that has two senses because who is ultimately on the bird's eye level providing safety for Jacob and Joseph and their family? Well, God is. But, but then who on the ground level um, it, did God use to make the safety happen? Well, he used Joseph. So Israel and his family don't arrive in Egypt, you know, just as, as strangers. And then Pharaoh says, you know, yeah, you can stay here as this random act of kindness. But God had spent 22 years putting Joseph in a position where he had favor and influence with Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would welcome Joseph's family of shepherds who he doesn't, wouldn't even eat around the dinner table with into his country and gives them the best of the land. One author describes how God works in this way. God could wave his hand and get instantaneous results, but he often seems to glory in working through complex processes. God is bringing about ends through means. The God of the miracle is also the same God who works through natural processes. And so God glories in these complex processes. It's not just that Jacob picks up his family and says, let's just go down there. And then it's like, oh yeah, sure, you can come in here. And it's like this instant change of mind on Pharaoh. But it's like 22 years of a complex process of slavery to prison, to being Pharaoh, and then to the brothers coming down. So that's why, while our faith is certainly personal, it is never private. God has saved for himself a people, not just persons and individuals. And he uses other persons who constitute his people to accomplish his purposes for his people. We're not all just, you know, scattered around as our, you know, kind of, you know, we're just Christians uh, on our own, but it's God has saved a people so that he can work through us. So the things you pray for God to do in your life aren't likely going to be brought about instantaneously. We may think we're asking God for help and he's answering us with silence, when in fact he answered our prayer using other people. And we say, well, you know, God didn't do anything about it. So-and-so did, did this for me. Well, that's how God did it for you. So Lifespring, we need each other. You need other people and they need you because God is using you to accomplish his purpose in other people's lives and he's using other people to accomplish his purpose in your life. He wants to love others through you. He wants to comfort others through you. He wants to speak into other people's lives through you. So if you're the type of person who's sitting on the edge of Christian community, if you just think your life is too busy and hectic and chaotic and that you need to gain some control before you can really get into some deep relationships here, especially, excuse me, then, well, then you are missing out on the way that God wants to help you in that busyness and that chaos and that hecticness. God uses people, and so if you avoid people until your problems are all solved, you're also avoiding the solution to your problems. And of course, you know, any of you who know if you're in deep relationships with people, you, that creates a lot more <laughs> problems a lot of times, but you also get to experience God's love through people. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are characteristics of God that he's building into his people. And so we say, I really want to experience God. We'll go hang out with his people who he's making his character uh, formed into. And so you can experience God's love, God's joy, God's peace from other people and his patience. 
So in conclusion, how do we walk with confidence through the unknowns of life? First, it's by trusting in our God, our trustworthy God, who is in control. And second, it's by making records of his faithfulness, especially in the big moments of life. And these records remind us of how he has been at work in the past and how he's been at work in our present and true to his promises. And third, it's by recognizing God's provision through other people. Because we can get discouraged and say, God's not answering my prayers. Um, but if we are living in a place where we're isolated from other people, um, or if we, people are helping us out and we're just not seeing it, we would miss that God is actually providing for us, and he is loving us, and he's doing things for us through his people. And life is full of unknown, but we can walk through it with confidence by trusting in our trustworthy God who is in the driver's seat and who keeps his promises. And sometimes he takes us through a dark tunnel, or a storm, but he is trustworthy, and so we can trust what he is doing is for his good, or for our good, and for, for his glory. We may be in the darkness, but we can look over and say, well, I, I trust you that what, you know, this darkness, this is, this is scary, this is a storm, but I, I trust you that you're doing something good with this. Because look at Joseph's life. Look at what it was like for him. There's plenty of dark tunnels and, and storms, and yet God was doing something over the course of 22 years. Can you imagine? That'll teach you patience. Um, God, please do your will in my life, 22 years later. You know, you, um, in the tapestry of our lives, God sometimes uses a dark thread in order to weave the beautiful tapestry he's creating as a whole. And as we can see proof of his trustworthiness by looking back at the record of his faithfulness, maybe we look back at those, those other thread he's, threads he's woven and how that dark thread tied into all these other ones and, and created, is creating this beautiful picture. And Joseph doesn't see it until way later. You know, his brothers come and he's like, how could he know that he was sent to Egypt to preserve life until his brothers came down? It's like, God sent me here to preserve your life. That's why you're sitting ahead of me. You know, it took him that long to see it. We can see proof of his trustworthiness by looking back at the record of his faithfulness in our lives and by continuing to make records now. And we can see his provision by recognizing he's using the people around us to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And he's using you to accomplish his purpose in their lives too. Let's pray. Father, it is... As the man said to Jesus... uh, I believe, please help my unbelief. We go through tough times of life and we um, aren't sure where it's heading or, or why we're going through things and often the why, we may never get it or it may come decades later and we just need to know that you are trustworthy, that you are good and you are in control. The best person to be in control is someone who is good and trustworthy and so would you help us as a church to walk I'm in trust of you with our future and through the unknowns of life. Help us to walk with confidence as we look around at our world, at our own lives personally, and, or look around at our country or whatever is happening. We don't have to, to, to walk uh, with a lack of confidence because we know that you're in control and you're trustworthy. And so would you help us as a church be people who rec- make records of that trustworthiness and who look um, in, to each other um, and see ourselves as needy, but at the same time needed. Thank you for your son. Thank you that we can pray to you and worship you this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.